A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When I was a platoon leader, I went out and I talked to Afghan women. And I remember one time... We met with a group of women and we had to ask permission from all their fathers and husbands and brothers to be able for them to meet all in one house. And these women had prepared a feast for us. They had killed a calf or a cow or something and they had made this wonderful food. And I remember we were wearing body armor. And as we went into this house, we started taking all that off and we started to wear the hijab. That was Kimberly Jung, Army veteran turned CEO and co-founder of Rumi Spice, a company that imports saffron and spices from Afghan farmers. I'll be speaking with her later on in today's show. Before that, Meathead Goldwyn, author of Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, is here to talk about the secret to barbecue ribs. Hey, Meathead, how are you? I'm, I'm fine, Christopher. How are you? Let's talk ribs. I, you know, I have problem cooking ribs. Uh, sometimes you get those sort of really chewy ribs, Texas ribs. Sometimes they fall off the bone. And uh, you're the kind of guy who tell me I, I'm doing it all wrong. So how do you cook ribs? <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, I, I'm one of these guys that if, if you like it, it's good. Uh, but uh, I think that the best ribs are ribs that have a little bite to them. They have a little chew to them. They shouldn't fall off the bone uh, for me usually if they fall off the bone it means they've been boiled or steamed and what a lot of people don't realize is that water is a solvent and it pulls all the flavor out of the meat when you boil meat you look at that water afterwards and it's brown and that's all flavor that's come out so i'm real fan of dry heat cooking ribs and of course outdoors on a grill or on a smoker indirect heat you know that rib section 
is a really hard working set of muscles and it takes a long time at a low temperature to make them tender so for me most of the time i'll cook them at about 225 right for three to four hours for baby backs five to six hours for spare ribs or st louis cut which is the center of the spare rib and uh throw in a little smoke for fun now over the years i've done a lot of recipes for barbecue not grilling and uh i cook it over the coals or indirectly over the coals for two or three hours then i pull things off wrap them in foil and shove them in a low oven to finish. Can you do that too, to, to finish in an oven, or does it have to be entirely on, on the barbecue? No, actually, that's a really great technique. The smoke flavor, uh, smoke are little tiny particles, as well as some gases and some uh, moisture. And they are attracted to cold surfaces. The cold meat attracts more smoke and smoke flavor huh. than warm meat. So once the meat has warmed up, and attracted a lot of smoke, it doesn't pick up a lot more. So moving it from outdoors indoors is perfectly fine. You're not going to get a lot more smoke after the first hour or so out there. Now, you and I have talked about this notion of not soaking wood chips. So why (laughs) should I not soak my wood chips? Well, the best flavor that comes from wood is from dry wood when it burns rapidly with flame. When it burns rapidly with flame, it burns up a lot of the impurities. So you get a real clean flavor, an elegant flavor. When wood is starved for oxygen and it smolders and it puts out a lot of visible white poofy or gray poofy smoke, the flavor is nice, but it's not as good as when it burns. When it burns, you can barely see the smoke. It's called blue smoke. And blue smoke is the holy grail of the barbecue expert. And the way to get blue smoke is with dry wood. You know, wood doesn't absorb water. Wood is uh, pretty darn impervious to water. That's why they build boats out of wood. (laughs) It doesn't soak up water. Good point. And, of course, water boils at 212. But wood doesn't combust until in the five, 600 degree range. 575 is a good number. So if you throw wet wood on top of fire, all that smoke you see is steam. It's just water evaporating at 212. And the wood can't go much higher until the water is gone. Hmm. Then it heats up. Then it smolders or burns. Then you get good, clean smoke. Now, do you believe in chips or chunks? And if you use chips, do you wrap them in foil or you just throw them on top of the coals directly? Um, either one works. Chunks burn a little slower, so they're better for long cooks. Um, chips burn a little faster. A lot of people write to me and say, oh, I, I throw wood on the fire and it just catches on fire and it burns up too fast. And I say, good, that's what you want. So that's the name of your next book, right? Blue Smoke. <laughs> You know, that's not a bad title. (laughs) No, the last book was subtitled. It was Meathead and subtitled The Science of Barbecue and Grilling. The next book will be called Meathead, The Art of Barbecue and Grilling. And uh, we're going to have fun. We're going to go outside the box. Uh, Meathead Goldwyn, thank you. The man's gone from science to art, and uh, we'll find out what you do next. Thank you. Christopher, it's always good talking to you. Take care. Take care. 
That was Meathead Goldwyn, barbecue whisperer and author of Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. As always, you can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio as a podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and Google Play. Now let's take a few of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Pete Natividad from El Paso, Texas. Hello, Pete. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about buttering a dish. I have seen several options, everything from wax paper to the paper that the butter is it comes in, pastry brush, and even recently I came across a video where they used the back of a spoon to butter a dish. Uh, of course, for me, the temptation is just to smear it all around with my fingers, but is that the correct way? Is that wrong? Which is the best way? I, I don't know. Well, are you talking, I assume, softened butter versus melted butter? Butter at room temperature. Right. I use uh, wax paper myself, or I use the paper the butter comes the in butter to wrapper. do that. Uh, okay. You certainly could use your fingers. Uh, I wouldn't uh-huh. use a pastry brush because it's not going to be strong enough to work the butter unless it's melted. If it's melted butter, use a pastry brush. If it's softened butter, room temperature, use wax paper or parchment paper I use. I don't think there's any right way to do it. Just make sure, obviously, if you're using your hands that they're clean. But the the main thing is when you're buttering a dish, that's because you don't want the item to stick to it. So just make sure you do a really thorough job and then pick it up and look at all the sides because that could really mess you up when you're trying to unmold it later on. I generally prefer to melt the butter and brush it on with a pastry brush. Can we do that even if the instructions don't say that, even if the directions don't say that? I've done it for recipes where they said to use softened butter, and I've used the melted, and I've never had a problem. Chris, what do you think? You don't follow rules. (laughs) This is... um, she was a hippie, as I was in the day. We and found this out. We didn't, yeah, we, we and had no it's idea. a little bit of, you know, we're going to go up against the man here. Yes. The man who says, use softened butter, she melts it. I tend to use softened butter. I just use some parchment paper and spread it around. It's fine. Right. But I think melted is fine. The thing about melted is then you don't get as dirty. And my hands, I look like I'm 100 years old. I don't look like it. Right, Chris? I look so young look and like vibrant. like 25. I do. <laughs> But, you know, I'm always trying to protect my hands. So you want to keep your hands young looking. Yes. Cooking's full of really odd choices for you. It is. Sarah. It is. It's fraud. Let's well, say. it is. And, and, you know, as I'm trying to develop comfort in the kitchen, you know, I, I get to these points and then I can get very obsessive almost. Or, oh, what do I do? What do I do? What is the best way? And, uh, in fact, that's another question. Does it help to chill? You know, because it's all runny and looks like it's not clinging correctly. One time I was tempted to put in the freezer, and what happened was I got the impression that the dish didn't rise as well because of the frozen butter. I don't know if that's correct, or I just... Well, the very cold metal or glass. Yeah. That's the reason. You don't have to, I would say, because once you grease it, it sticks, you know. But meanwhile, you know, when you say that you really worry about these things, that means that you're a really good cook. I wouldn't feel bad about worrying about it. Well, you know, that is very nice to hear because, of course, I feel bad that I feel bad. <laughs> Don't. Then it's a vicious cycle. No, well, we feel bad that you feel bad that no, you feel no, bad. No, no, we're going to set you free and tell you that makes you a serious cook, and we See, like this, that. this is a hippie show. We're going to set you <laughs> free. Let's all hold hands. Pete, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. You sound like a very interesting guy. Well, that's very nice, and I appreciate that. Thanks for the call. Okay. All right, goodbye. Take care. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, thank you. This is Sue from Old Lyme, Connecticut. Oh, I love Old Lyme. That's a cool place. <laughs> Very pretty. Yeah. yeah. 
It is. Um, I had a question for you about hummus. My son, who just returned from a trip to Jerusalem for business, said they pronounce it hummus. They do. That's true. Okay. But we were just in Tel Aviv uh, two months ago doing a hummus story or hummus story. Yes, and and I do have your ma- I subscribe to your magazine, and that's what made me consider asking you about the question of the skin of the hummus when you're cooking it, or first if um, you're using it from a can. When I swish it around in a bowl of water, just to get the liquid. No, out. no, no l- let me stop you right there. You yeah, you can't okay. use canned chickpeas. Absolutely now I, I, not. You're right. I'm not against canned beans, but in this particular yeah. recipe, since it's entirely chickpea, you have to use dried, uh, salt yep. them overnight with water, soak them, and then cook them with some baking soda. And baking then, soda tenderizes the skin. And you throw them in a food processor for three or four minutes with some of the liquid from the cooking liquid and uh, whip that hummus until it's really light and it's still warm. Okay, and and I will try that. I've I've looked at that recipe. I wonder, do you rinse them after they've been soaking for twelve hours? You just drain them and then okay. and then cook them in fresh water with baking soda. The key is a couple things. In the Middle East, they use a very small chickpeas, which yeah. we like a little better, but you can use large ones. They have to be dried. Cook them with baking soda, which gives them more even cooking, but right hot when you drain them and reserving some of the cooking liquid, you put them in a food processor with some of that liquid and whip it. And sometimes, some places, they whip them for a long time, but three or four minutes, and it gets really, really airy. Then you add quite a lot of tahini to that and some lemon Mm. juice, but uh, no garlic. But it's warm, and it's very light and whipped. You had mentioned until the skins peel off. So you don't necessarily let those skins float to the surface and remove them. You incorporate that. Yeah, in it's fine because you're going you're gonna to whip it with the cooking liquid. It'll all get processed. That You don't see any skins in the final. Okay. It's quite a bit of volume of skin when I do it's it fine. with the canned ones. I haven't tried now, if you use, yet. With baking soda, you get a more even penetration inside and out, so everything's really nice and soft. They have to be very soft when you cook them. It's terrific. And the other thing we found, they have lots of different toppings. And so... Wow. They put a lot of things on top, including our spicy meat sauce, which we also published that, that recipe. Yeah. I, I, That's dinner. I love that recipe. Yeah. The other thing we found is, A, it was for breakfast. That's what people eat for breakfast yeah. in Tel Aviv. And they also, sometimes instead of pita, they'll use wedges of onion, scoop up the... <laughs> Sarah's looking at me with her eyes wide open. <laughs> this is raw onion. Yeah, yeah. They, they use raw onion because they don't want to fill up on the bread. And you don't go around with onion breath the rest of the oh, day? Oh, I'm sure you do. You sure would. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, with some nice warm pita. Uh, Sounds delicious. It's delicious. It does. I think it's the best recipe you can make with about three ingredients or four ingredients. Yeah. It's, it's really good. It's very simple. Yeah, it's very simple. It's delicious. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Give it a shot. For answering my question. Pleasure. Thanks, it. Susan. Thanks, Susan. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question... Just give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. You can also send us an email anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Brett. Hi, Brett. Where are you calling from? Port Washington, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? What's your question? Why do I never see a cooking show use a flavor injector? Well, I used to do a pig roast every year in August. It was about a... 60-pound pig. I had one of the injectors because he used that sour orange mixture to brine. And I find it made absolutely no difference whatsoever. You don't get any flavor. I get no flavor in the meat at all. 
the only reason it might be helpful is to get the brine in deeper, faster, with a big cut of meat. But I just, uh, there was no flavor benefit. I didn't get any flavor in the meat, at least in the pork. That was my experience. Have you done it? I have not. I was wondering, should I go out and purchase it? But I've never seen anybody use it. I think the reason you use it for a pig is you can't brine a pig. This is not going to happen. So if you got a big carcass, you know, 80 pounds of pig, then you're going to have to use something to inject essentially a brine solution in the legs and in the shoulders and stuff because that's the only way you're going to get it in there. I think that's when mm-hmm. I would use it if it was a big cut of meat. Well, my question is, if you're going to do something like that, do you then let the pig sit for a while so the yeah, salt overnight. can sort of work its magic? Yeah, yeah you do it the night because, before. Because, you know, sometimes you buy those roasts in the supermarket that have been injected with liquid, and A, they're watery, right. and B, they taste like the brine. Again, I think you lose some of the... spongy. Yeah, I don't like the texture, and I think you lose some of the flavor of the meat. Yeah, I don't like those. Because when you, like, particularly dry brine, you know, just salt something, what goes in and out of the meat is just the meat juices. So it stays, it's more meaty when you're done. I'm also, I'm post-brine now. (laughs) Post, what, salt, even just salting? It's the story of my life. It was pre-brine, I was brine, now I'm post-brine. Now I salt. Yeah, but so you don't do a liquid. I, you know, salt a chicken uh, with, like, a tablespoon or, or two of salt on the outside, let it sit overnight in the fridge, uncovered on a rack, and then roast it off, and a little bit of the salt under the skin. And I think it does a great job. It doesn't give you that overly wet texture. Texture, which and, yeah, mentioned. and the flavor of whatever the liquid was. So I, I, I would just yeah. salt, you know, for a three or four pound chicken, it's just a tablespoon of kosher salt. That's what I would do. Yeah, me too. I think it works right. Thank you for your uh, advice. All right. Thank you for calling. Be well. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I chat with Kimberly Jung of Rumi Spices. She went back to Afghanistan after her tour of duty and decided to start a business that would help local women. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Kimberly Jung is an Army veteran who served in Afghanistan, but when she finished her tour of duty, she was not done. She was so taken by the hospitality and kindness of the Afghan women 
that she actually went back to start a company to import saffron and other spices. This creates good jobs for local women who, for the first time, received wages directly paid to them. Let's start at the beginning. You were a platoon leader in Afghanistan in charge, among other things, I guess, of disarming roadside bombs. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Uh, How did you know where they were? Uh, What was the process? I just like to understand what it was really like. Absolutely. So I was deployed in Afghanistan in 2010, and my platoon and I did road construction. And so none of us had really trained for route clearance. And route clearance like you said, is looking for roadside bombs. I will say it's it's definitely not what you expect it to be, and you're you're going very slowly along these roads, and you're looking for all sorts of, you know, whether it's a misplaced rock or there's a, a wire on the ground, um, and you're to rely on just being very watchful for these items, and then things just happen all of a sudden. And it's overall kind of a scary job, but at the end of the day, you know, you're there, and, and that's what you signed up for, and you're serving your country. Before we get to the spice business, which I'm fascinated by, just a question about things from the Afghan point of view. From your experience, do they, do the Afghan people just see a series of people coming in from the outside who come and go? And so they're a little bit jaded about the future in terms of what's coming up in the future? In other words, how do they view us or view other people who've been in Afghanistan who obviously are are from the outside? The Afghan people are some of the most loyal and hospitable people I've ever met, and they're fiercely loyal to their families, and that's where they derive their identities. I mean, they do have a national identity, but it's not as strong as, like, let's say, here in the States. And they, they derive most of their self-identity with their family. So when outsiders come in, it's, you know, there's been a lot of them, right? There's been the Russians and there's been the British and the Americans. And, you know, with us and with NATO forces, it switches out not even just every year, but sometimes even months, right? So a new person will come into the job and they'll be in that area and they'll meet the Afghan families or that tribe in the area and say, oh, here, we're, we're here to change things. Right. And then they leave after a couple of months and at the maximum a year. And these Afghans have to build those relationships all over again. So when this right. happens every single year, because for us it's the deployment and for them it's their life, right. um, they absolutely get jaded. Let's talk about spices and let's talk about saffron. I think most people don't really know, and I've never seen it done, how do you harvest saffron? What, what is it? Let's start with that. And how do you harvest it? Saffron comes from the crocus, so it's this crocus sativus, and it's planted in June in Afghanistan, and it grows until October, and there's about a two to three week period where the crocuses bloom, and we pick the entire flower in the fields and then Rumi Spice buys the flowers, the fresh flowers from the farmers, and we transport them over to the processing facilities. In our processing facilities, we pick the three stigmas from the flowers. So here, here's a question. You know, uh, I wonder if all saffron is either really saffron, you know, you wonder, or if it's really low quality. So are some people selling, quote unquote, fake saffron? Unfortunately, a lot of people are selling fake saffron. First of all, there is one country that I think most people think that 
saffron comes from, and it's Spain. And there is a growing region in Spain, it's La Mancha, but you know, they, Spain actually grows only 10% of what it exports. So 90% of the saffron in the world comes from Iran. And by the time it gets through a couple of hands and goes through Spain, then it's been adulterated, it's very old, and that stale smell that you smell is not typical of saffron, but that's the smell that I would say a lot of chefs and foodies think is the smell of saffron. So what people do is they add dyed corn silk, which are the really skinny threads, or they have <laughs> pieces of safflower. So uh, in Turkey, I think that's when you have those like piles of saffron, it's usually safflower, and those are kind of thick. Right. Yeah, I wondered about that because I've been in markets and I've seen piles. And I'm just going like, that looks like $50,000 yeah. of saffron <laughs> in that pile. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about your business, Rumi Spice, R-U-M-I. By the way, why is it called Rumi Spice? Rumi is a 13th century poet and philosopher. He's also a Sufi mystic. And Rumi actually was, in 2007, was America's favorite poet. And some of his quotes include... Out beyond fields of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Hmm. You know, for us, Rumi represents the kind of emotional and spiritual commitment to Afghanistan that I think has been lacking, where we've spent $60 billion in Afghanistan in aid money, and yet we have not that much to show for it. And um, so... With Rumi, like, we are going to the Afghan people. So when we sit down with them and we listen to them and we figure out what they actually need and want, then we can make some progress. Is there someone who's a manager on the ground who manages the process for you there in Afghanistan? Yes, we have a couple of people. We opened up three processing facilities in Afghanistan, in Herat, in 2015, and... You know, we hired 384 Afghan women, which actually made us the largest private employer of Afghan women. And we bought mm. the flowers directly from the farmers, and we processed about 40 kilograms of saffron, which is a lot of saffron. What's important to note here is that before the farmers were growing the saffron and picking the stigmas in their homes, like the women were picking the stigmas, and it was part of a family economy. So first of all, the women are not getting paid direct wages because they're part of the family economy. And secondly, it wasn't necessarily food safe because it's happening inside the home on, on mats and carpets and then drying out in the open right. in the sun. So what we've been able to do is to buy the, the commercial drying machines, have the women all come to one facility, follow the, the proper procedures for food safety, wear gloves, masks, hairnets, and also pay them a direct wage, which is hugely important. So are you concerned uh, in the future as America, I assume over time, pulls farther out with less financial aid? Uh, would this factory be at risk, for example, if the Taliban came back to that area or uh, someone else? The Taliban presence is definitely there. Our farmers deal with them probably every day. And they're just part of the landscape, just like everything else. But the Taliban have to deal with the farmers also because farmers make up 80% of Afghanistan's population. And so if the farmers are not happy, the Taliban's not going to have a great time either. So we talk a lot about waging the war of hearts and minds. 
which I think we as Americans and NATO forces did okay, but so does the Taliban. And so when you think about allying yourself with the farmers through business and they get a direct income, that is a better way to go. So you don't have to necessarily worry about other factors, although we do. Let's talk about spice blends. What what are some typical combinations of spices in Afghanistan? So our Afghan spice blend has cumin, coriander, cassia, clove, and paprika, and saffron. I would use that with beef. Um, We've actually made brownies with that, too, and it's been really good. And then with the cobble blend, that one, I don't, this one we, we call the cobble blend. It's really good with chicken and other poultry, and it's, we have hibiscus, elderflower, dried rose puddle, dried orange peel, mm. and saffron. So how often do you get back to Afghanistan? I go back every year. Last time I went, I got a chance to pick flowers in the fields with our Afghan ladies, and then also pick the stigmas from the flowers with our Afghan ladies in the processing facilities. And that was a lot of fun and a lot of hard work. And I got to know some of these ladies. And it's amazing how much can be communicated when you're just sitting in the same room with someone, even if you don't speak the same language. And I had my phone with me, and they wanted me to play music, so I just played the first thing that was on my phone. And it, it was a Beyonce, Shakira song. <laughs> and they knew all the words to that song, even though really? they don't speak any English. Huh. And then we ended up, people started moving their heads and... We closed the door, and then we had the straight-up dance party until one of the managers came in and was like, what are you guys doing? Get back to work. But that was one of the best experiences of my life, is having that little dance party in our processing facility in Afghanistan. What was the moment that you fell in love with the Afghan people? When I was platoon leader, I went out and I talked to Afghan troops and we did missions together and I remember how hospitable they were I mean they gave us lunch they shared their lunches with us they talked with us and and, be, and were really friendly even though we didn't speak Dari or Pashto and they didn't speak any English and I also had a chance to go out with provincial reconstruction teams and meet Afghan women and I remember one time you know, we met with a group of women and we had to ask permission from all their fathers and husbands and brothers to be able for them to meet all in one house. And so we did. And this is when, usually when we go out in Afghanistan as troops, like we have all of our weapons with us. We're wearing our Kevlar, like our helmets, and we're wearing body armor. And as we went into this house, we started taking all that off and we started to wear the hijab, you know, the, the headscarf. Mm-hmm. And these women had prepared a feast for us. They had killed a calf or a cow or something, and they had made this wonderful food. And they had the homemade naan, and they had okra. And we sat around on the floor, and they kept urging us to eat. And we ate until we were so full. And at the end, there was no food that went wasted. So even half eaten food, I remember watching this one lady take a morsel and put it in her mouth and looked straight at me and then she put her hand to her heart. You know, these, these people had given so much and they have nothing. They don't even have running water. They don't have electricity sometimes. And they made this big feast for us just to welcome us in. And I didn't feel like I had anything to give, you know, like I didn't feel like I had anything to give that was worth anything to them. And I wanted to be able to do that. 
Kimberly, it's been uh, an enormous pleasure. I want to thank you for your service. And I think um, you seem to understand hearts and minds better than most of us. So, Kimberly, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. That was Kimberly Jung, CEO and co-founder of Rumi Spice. You know, my first thought after interviewing Kimberly Jung is that we ought to let her run the war in Afghanistan. She has a passion for an understanding of a culture halfway around the world. What impressed me the most, however, is that she actually went back to fulfill a promise to help the Afghan women that she'd grown to love by starting a business that would give them jobs and their own future. Her business is named after a 13th century Persian poet, Rumi, who once said, where there is ruin, there is hope for a treasure. You know, with more people like Kimberly, well, that just might be true. Right now, I'm headed into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you? I'm very happy. I've been making biscuits, uh, baking powder biscuits for 45, 50 years. I don't need a recipe at this point. I finally memorized it after all those years. I make them almost every Saturday morning. And here you come telling me there's something new under the sun in the world of biscuits. So what would that thing be? (laughs) It's true, Chris. We didn't really think we would find anything new about biscuits, but we did. It's a whipped cream biscuit. So instead of relying on just baking powder and baking soda for leavening, you fold in a little bit of stiffly whipped cream. And the air that's trapped in that cream adds a little extra lift to the biscuit makes it really fluffy and light, not just in texture, but a little lighter flavor. It's not as rich and laden with butter. It makes it a perfect vessel for any kind of a dessert that calls for a biscuit. So on one end of the scale, you have beaten biscuits, which are dense. And then on the other hand, you have whipped cream biscuits. Right. Very light and fluffy. So you use baking powder and soda too? Correct. Okay. So it's an additional way of leavening. Right. Which is why it's so much more fluffy. Okay. So we have essentially a dessert biscuit because it's a little sweeter and lighter. You know, we're headed into the world of strawberry shortcake, I, I guess. You are right, Chris. So sometimes strawberries can be hit or miss, even in the height of summer. So we wanted to create a strawberry flavor that was really the perfect strawberry. So we macerate the strawberries with a little bit of sugar, a little bit of lime zest. And to sort of speed up the process of softening those strawberries, we take a portion out and mash them with a potato masher. Those get really soft, and then the other ones are still kind of firm, so you have a more balance and texture. Yeah, I guess if you mash strawberries with the masher, they sort of soften right up. <laughs> they sure do. It takes a tough cook to make a tender <laughs> strawberry. So we're almost done, so how do we finish up the strawberry shortcake? Well, you need whipped cream to make it a strawberry shortcake, and we wanted something a little bit different than just a straight sweetened whipped cream. So we add a little bit of sour cream to the whipped cream, which added some tang, a little vanilla, and some brown sugar, which we liked a little bit better than white sugar, adds a little bit of a caramel flavor rather than just kind of straight sweetness. So whipped cream biscuits for dessert, and can I keep my biscuit recipe for Saturday morning? You're the boss. (laughs) Thank you, Lynn. You can find our recipe for whipped cream biscuits at our website, 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to open up the phone lines, take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to be brilliant 
Chris, I am so ready to always be brilliant. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mark from Des Moines, Iowa. How are you? Hi, Mark from Des Moines. I'm good. How can I help you? Good. Well, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm excited to be on your show. Pleasure. Yeah, I uh, have a couple of young kids, a five-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old and a wife, and one of our favorite things to do with them is to take them on picnics. And I am um, always uh, trying to come up with, you know, creative things that are reasonable to make ahead and stick in a cooler and take on a picnic. And I was just wondering if you had any good ideas for us on some things that were a little out of the ordinary that we could take on a picnic like that. We just did um, a Sichuan chicken where you smash the chicken a little bit and then it has a dressing, a marinade. It takes half an hour to make. And I find that could be in a sandwich if you want or served any way you like, but it's very quick to make. You know, some things you bring on a picnic and they're sort of chilled and they don't have a lot of flavor. This has a tremendous amount of flavor. I think kids would like it too. Sarah? I was going to say, how about, you know, chicken wings have two joints and one of them is a drumette. And if you got just drumettes and coated them, I have this recipe I do where I dip them in garlic, melted garlic butter, and then a mixture of Parmesan and fresh breadcrumbs and bake it so it gets a little crispy on the outside. Those are yummy, cold, hot, or at room temperature. And they just look sort of cute, and you pick them up, and they're really yummy, and everybody loves them. So that would be one. This is a woman who trained in France, and she's going for cute little... Chicken wings? Well, I am five feet. You know, I I do like small things. What can I tell you? (laughs) And everybody likes their own little personal whatevers, you know. So their own little personal drumstick, but it's actually white meat. It's a wing. It's half of a wing. If I go hunting, which I do a lot, I make meatloaf the night before, which I don't like warm at all. Cold meatloaf sandwich is the best thing. Slices well, too. Uh, Yeah, it's... It's American pate, let's face it. Whatever you want to call it. That's high on my list. Another thing I was going to suggest, although you're going to think I'm crazy because it involves mayonnaise, but store-bought mayonnaise is actually preservative, is to make either a shrimp or a chicken salad and then toast up some hot dog rolls, you know, like they do for lobster rolls, and just take those. Don't Hmm. refrigerate the rolls. Take them outside of the cooler and then just put it together when oh. you get there. And it's sort of fun because, again, everybody has their individual, like, little hot dog thingy. And if you want to make the hot dog rolls even more interesting, you either get the New England version. They're naked on the outside so that you brown them in butter. Or if you can't okay. get the New England version, you take regular hot dog rolls and you just cut off the sides so that it's exposed bread and then toast them in butter. And that's so yummy. You should have been the chef on Sesame Street. The sandwich girl. You would have oh. been the sandwich girl on Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. I'd be the size of the kids, too. <laughs> that would work just fine. Huh. Yeah. But I think those are two good ideas that would those make are good me ideas. happy, kids yeah. and grownups alike. Well, I love all those suggestions, and I really appreciate all of them. Uh, I think the first one I'm going to try is the meatloaf. And also the meatloaf, when you eat something cold, you want to make sure it's a little more heavily seasoned. It deadens the flavor. Yeah, it deadens the flavor a little, so you might add a little extra seasoning. It holds well. Kids love it. Adults love it. Sounds good. Great. There you go. Guys, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I really appreciate the suggestions. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Denmark. Whoa. I spent a little yeah. time there in the late 80s. A lovely oh, country. You. Yeah. Yes, it is. actually very beautiful. Are, are you American or are you Danish? We're American. So how can we help you? I have been doing more baking recently, and all of the recipes I'm using are calling for large eggs. But I don't find large eggs here as often as I did when I was living in the States. So I've been baking more using medium. And so my question is, 
first, what is the volume and or weight of a large egg, and can I use that to help substitute with medium eggs? In this country, you can't really substitute medium for large because it's a fairly sizable difference, but I believe, and Sarah can correct me, as she likes to do, <laughs> I, I think a medium in Europe is about the same as a large in this yeah. country, which is... I don't oh, know. really? Yeah. Somewhere in the mid-50. Yeah, 60 grams or so. But yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they're about the same. Let me ask you a question. How has your baking turned out? So far, it's been okay, but it might just be what I'm making. I haven't done anything really special or delicate. I'm not, like, doing fancy cakes or anything. It's pretty much just normal things like pancakes or muffins and stuff. Well, that wouldn't really matter for those. But if you did an angel food yeah, cake or exactly, a sponge cake. Exactly. And, I just, yeah. yeah, I just wasn't sure if I started doing things that required need to be more specific. Well, here's a test. Take four of your medium eggs, crack them in a bowl on a digital scale in grams and weigh them. And a large egg in this country is almost 60 grams or so. So if your four eggs weigh 220, 240 grams, you're in the ballpark. And my guess is it'll be in the ballpark. But I would use a a digital scale that reads in grams and uh, just test it out. I've been doing a lot more weighing when I bake anyway. So oh, you should. I have to scale out quite a bit. Yeah. No, it's, and, and there you are in Europe, and that's what they use. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and everything here is in grams, so right now when I'm using butter and stuff to figure out my tablespoons rather than having a stick of butter, I've been weighing everything. So. Terrific. Yay. All right. Wonderful. <laughs> anyway, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, and thanks for the podcast. I've really been enjoying it. Thanks. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Diane Teeter. Hi, Diane. How can we help you? Well, I've been considering getting a baking steel. Okay. And I bake all my bread. I make pizza frequently. I have pizza bricks in two of my ovens, and they're there all the time. And I'm just not sure if that's what I want to do or if it'll make anything better, so I thought I'd ask you. This will be the world's shortest phone call. Yes. (laughs) We've been making pizza for a month at Milk Street. The steel makes all the difference. Any particular brand? I have no idea. But the steel versus a pizza stone is a okay. big step up, and we get much better crust. You can live without it, but it's... It heats better than the stone? Heats better, and you get a great crust. That's what pizza's about for me. Yeah, I think that's an absolute must. Actually, we were arguing about whether to publish the recipe because it was so dependent on that steel. Steel, yeah. I mean, it's still good without it, but I'd say it's 20 30% better with the steel. I also read that putting the steel on top of a stone is even better. I think just the steel's fine. Do you have to worry about too hot, and does it shorten the time? No. If you go to Naples, the oven's about 900 degrees. So uh, Right. No. We have an oven that we use outside with a brick and a propane, and it gets up to 750. Wow. But the when I make it in the house, I just wasn't sure. I didn't want to burn everything at No, first. no. Your, you know, your 550 oven inside is fine. No, the steel's fine. I guess the only question I would have is, you know, I left a pizza stone in my oven, and I found that it really messed up 
the cooking time and the baking with cakes and other things because the air didn't circulate properly right, in the oven. Right, okay. right. So I, I take it out. Other people say leave it in. I take and it that's out. that's hard. I which mean, is yeah. a pain. Yeah, it is. But it's if, heavy. if you make pizza, buy the steel. Okay. Now, I've seen the steels from King Arthur, and I trust them. Yeah, yes, so do I. So do we. Then I have a birthday next week, and okay. so that is what is going to be on the list. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye now. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic, my top five pantry ingredients. Here are the five pantry ingredients you don't have, but you actually really need. The first is pomegranate molasses. You know, I heard about this about 15 years ago and thought it was one of those silly gourmet ingredients, and now I use it two or three times a week. You boil down the juice of pomegranates, and round it out with a little bit of sugar and acid. It's dark, it's fruity, and it's slightly bitter. You can add it to almost anything while you're cooking. Great ingredient. Number two, fish sauce. Fish sauce is fish sauce. It's made with anchovies and salt, at least the better kinds are, and it doesn't really taste fishy. It should have a much more subtle flavor. You add it in very small amounts to round out almost anything from an omelet to a sauce to a soup to a stew. Number three is miso. It's fermented soybean paste, and there are many varieties from white and smooth to dark and chunky. We like the whiter kind. It's mild, it's sweet and salty, and it's great to add as a glaze on meats, for example. It's great to add to a stew or to soups. Number four, harissa. Harissa comes from Tunisia. It's really ground chilies with spices and sometimes a little salt. You can make it with tomato paste and other ingredients if you like. It has a wonderful flavor as a dip, and also you can incorporate it into many other recipes, mayonnaise, for example, to make a sandwich spread. Number five, toasted sesame oil. It's not regular sesame oil, it's actually toasted. It has a very rich, nutty flavor, and it's used in all kinds of Asian recipes. And that's it. Those are my five new pantry ingredients you don't have, but you really need. Right now, our newest contributor, Kenji Lopez-Alt from the Food Lab, tries to sell me on the benefits of the mortar and pestle. Hey, Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, You're the science guy, and I have a science question. I was in uh, Thailand last December. Okay. And I noticed that the mortar and pestle was used all the time. Yeah. Lemongrass, shallots, galangal, herbs— And so my question is this, is there, scientifically speaking, do you get a different flavor? Is the product different if you use a mortar and pestle versus, let's say, a food processor? Yeah, and absolutely. And and this is one of the things I was really surprised about when I was testing, because you think a food processor, it's got a powerful motor in it, it's got sharp blades, it's going to pull out flavor better than, you know, a mortar and pestle, which is a sort of hand instrument. Uh, like a really ancient tool can do. Um, But it turns out the mortar and pestle actually does a better job than a food processor. And the main reason is because with a mortar and pestle, you're you're crushing vegetable cells uh, as opposed to shearing them. Um, So if you imagine it like a vegetable, um, say, or a piece of galangal or a shallot or whatever as... Uh, like a stack of shipping containers. Mm-hmm. Um, and inside each one of those shipping containers um, is this flavorful stuff that you're trying to get out. What a food processor does is it kind of knocks that stack over. The blades are very sharp and they end up slicing in between uh, vegetable cells. So you kind of knock that stack over and make a mess of it, but you don't actually destroy and open up many of the c- containers. 
Whereas a mortar and pestle is more like, you know, uh, like when Godzilla comes to the to the port and starts stomping on everything. (laughs) Um, All those all those containers get smashed and opened up. um, And so their aromatic compounds inside uh, end up getting released more. Um, So if you if you taste side by side a curry paste or a pesto or a salsa, something like that made uh, in a mortar and pestle versus in a food processor, um, the flavor is actually much more prominent in a mortar and pestle than it is in a food processor. Um, You also obviously end up with a different texture um, when you're making something in a mortar and pestle. Um, you know, so for, if you're crushing, say, garlic and salt in a mortar and pestle, you end up with a sort of paste um, that makes it much easier to sort of emulsify into other things um, as opposed to the finely chopped mixture that you get from a food processor. You know, I also watched Andy Ricker of uh, Pock mm-hmm. Pock fame. I visited him outside of Chiang Mai. He said there are two distinctly different stages when you use a mortar and pestle. The first is you're really dropping the pestle down into the mortar, sort of an up and down Mm -hmm. vertical motion. And once things start to get crushed, then you move it around in a circular motion. Did you you try that or did you have a specific technique you liked? Uh, no, yeah, that's that's the same technique I use. You know, my, my favorite mortar and pestle actually is, um, you know, and I've tried mortars and pestles from around the world, and there's all different styles. My favorite one is actually the um, the, the, the Thai style, the, the granite, granite ones, right. um, sort of, you know, like a two or three cup capacity, I think is pretty good for home use. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, they, they you start by going up and down just to sort of get all the big pieces um, and sort of get the juices flowing until it's... Uh, starting to be a paste and then and then you go around in a circular motion and that really grinds you know you're, it's essentially you're making like a sort of like a wet mill um and you're and you're grinding between the two rough surfaces um can I ask another question so what you're saying is i have a granite one too uh you're saying you do want a coarse surface for both the pestle and the mortar correct because mm-hmm. i, I yeah, don't yeah, w- you want, you... W- why are some of them smooth uh i see smooth marble ones for example w- why would someone make it smooth well, with the, I mean, with the smoother marble one, um, generally, like you know, you you can the smoother the surface, obviously, the the, the finer the grind you can get because you're going to get better contact between the pestle and the mortar. So if if you're doing something like a small handful of of spices and you want to reduce it to a really right. fine powder, then a smooth one will will do that. It'll reduce oh, it to a finer powder than a, a than a very coarse granite one will. I, I generally don't really care that much. Uh, whether my spices are are a completely fine powder, or whether there's a little bit of texture to them, um, which, by the way, I think is also another great use for mortar and pestle. You know, spice grinders, electric spice grinders or coffee grinders, will work really quickly, but they're kind of a pain in the butt to clean. Um, I find that if I'm doing a small amount of spices, just a you know a, a couple teaspoons of ground cumin, something like that, um, a mortar and pestle is actually way way faster uh, than an electric spice grinder is going is going to be once you take into account all the assembly and cleaning and all that. You know, my wife, Melissa, always tells me I was, I should have been born, or maybe I was born in the 19th century, but it seems like we're all going back. I'm doing a lot of things by hand, whisking a couple egg whites, a little bit of yeah. whipping cream, using the mortar and pestle, and you get it sometimes a better result, and it's more satisfying. Now, one last thing. Uh, you mentioned to me at one time something about freezing ingredients before putting them in the mortar. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is something I was I've been testing a bit um, recently. Freezing ingredients um, as counterintuitive as it seems for uh, fresh herbs, um, freezing them can actually uh, improve the way that you draw flavor out of them. Because freezing, um, you know, when you, when you freeze, say like a, f- a handful of basil leaves, the the water inside the individual vegetable cells uh, forms these jagged ice crystals that end up sort of puncturing the vegetable cell walls, uh, and so it becomes much easier to release their 
their uh, their contents. So if you're if you're making say a pesto, you can take your handful of basil leaves or a big pile of them, throw them on a tray, and put them in the freezer for a few minutes until they're solid, and then take them out, and it actually makes crushing them in the mortar pestle much much easier. Um, which you know which is good news, especially if you're making something like a Thai curry paste, where you know if you're in if you're in the U.S., you're probably not making a, a curry paste all that often, and some of those ingredients, lemongrass and galangal, um, they can be a little bit difficult to find. So if you do find them, you can get a bulk supply of them, throw them in the freezer, and mm-hmm. it'll actually make making the curry paste even easier down the line. Sometimes you are counterintuitive, <laughs> but I find you're usually right. So that, if you're going to be counterintuitive, it's important to be right. Kenji, thank you. Right. Uh, you know, a granite two to three cup mortar and pestle uh, actually makes life easier in the kitchen, but you also get more flavor. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. The notion that the old ways are best is a dicey proposition. A 1949 Farmall tractor, that's the one I grew up using, is not as good as a modern Kubota. The Farmall was dangerous, underpowered, and likely to tip over on a steep hill. In the kitchen, however, it's often true that old tools are in fact best. The whisk, the knife, the cutting board, and the pot. And of course, the mortar and pestle. That's why more experienced folks return to simpler tools as they grow. A whisk and a bowl, just like a shovel and a bucket, are powerful tools in the right hands. That's it for this week. If you missed us, you can always listen to our podcast, by the way, it's free, on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll automatically get our shows every single week downloaded on your smartphone. You can also head over to 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download the recipes discussed in this week's episode, learn more about Milk Street and our travels around the world, subscribe to our magazine, and hear news about our upcoming television show that launches this September. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.